Do your hand up, Terry. Is that a philosophical question? Are you raising your hand? Are you signaling that you want to say something? No, scratching. Oh, okay. All right. How's Prometheus Unbound going? Um, are you liking it? No, you don't. As I say, very few people um, ever like it the first time they read it. Um, you keep waiting for the chase scene, the action scenes, the fights, the the calling out, the um, showdown on Main Street at noon, and it just somehow doesn't it just keeps not happening. Um, and won't happen. Um, but stuff does happen, but what happens, one way to talk about it is to say that everything that happens happens and has to happen in the mind. Um, and if you ask whose mind, you're asking the right question. Um, or maybe you're asking the right question, which will lead you to find out. It's the right question because it will lead you to find out that it's the wrong question. Um, but it's the right wrong question. Whereas, when are they going to actually have their showdown is like, they're not, um, or they do at the very start. Okay, so I'm, we're um, technically supposed to finish Prometheus Unbound on Thursday. No, Friday. I never remember. Um, plus, you have this paper and everything. Um, I think because we've missed a couple of classes due to weather, um, what we'll do is um, go back to Prometheus Unbound the first day after vacation. Um, so that'll give you vacation to do your second reading of Prometheus Unbound when you'll like it, um, once you get some sense of what's going on. Um, I want to get back to Mont Blanc. Did anyone reread it after class last um, Friday? Well, I'm writing on it, so I... So you reread it? Yeah. Plus, you, um, we did an English 11. Yeah. Um, yeah. So is it, do you feel like you're getting deeper into it as you do that? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you're not, you shouldn't write on it. Yeah. Um, but it's, um, I mean, I think it's it's a close to inexhaustible poem, and part of what it's about is being is about how it's close to inexhaustible. Um, are you scratching the air now? No. Because the the air doesn't look that itchy. No, but, um, yeah, Tony. So, uh, Yes. Yeah. 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 Right, exactly. Um, so, yeah, you did, and that, that was great. Thoreau is basically um, follows Emerson to follow the Romantics. And, um, yeah, Thoreau read the Romantic poets, Wordsworth especially. Um, and to the extent that you see continuity, this is something we talked about last week, that is the um, idea of lyrical drama and its relation to the idea of lyrical ballad. Um, but the, it's certainly the case that the American transcendentalists, of whom Emerson and Thoreau are the great representatives, are um, following Romanticism and following it in what they regard as um, precisely the kind of new world um, that Romanticism idealizes, but that in America is more present in its novelty um, in its undevelopedness, in its naturalness, at least to a European perspective. 
Um, so there's no doubt that there's a way in which Thoreau especially is putting into practice um, some of the ideas of Romanticism. As I mentioned before, Coleridge and Southey had, and this is something that Byron talks about, had planned to move to America in the 1790s and to establish a commune there, which they call their Pantisocracy. Um, as you know, some of the American transcendentalists and their friends slash enemies like Hawthorne um, did try to set up, did set up a commune um, right nearby, which didn't work so well. Um, but the idea of living in nature, um, living in um, communion with nature, um, you know, the idea that returns in the 60s with communes again, um, that's something that um, does come out of English Romanticism. Um, but say more about Thoreau, because you had actually more interesting things to say about the relationship of, of um, thinking about oneself and thinking about the nature around one. Yeah, that's great. That's real, that's that um, sense that that if you look really hard at anything in nature, um, it will repay how hard you look at it. And um, the question is why? Why does it repay that? Um, and an older answer was because it's all created by God. And um, not a sparrow shall fall, to quote the Gospels, um, without the Lord God being, um, uh, have, knowing about it, taking account of it, being aware of it. That's what Hamlet quotes. There's a special providence in the fall of the sparrow. That is that God is paying attention to everything. And the older deistic view is that you can see that God pays attention to everything by looking at anything in nature. That's what um, natural history is about and the development of modern biology, modern science um, in the 18th century um, as a deistic science. Um, but that's not true for, for Shelley and his atheism. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you so if you do do the legwork and look to understand nature, will repay you with something amazing, and that's what Thoreau keeps finding that everything that seemed human, he can find in nature. Do people know Walden? Is this? Um, do you know of it? Um, are you sort of um, agnostic about Walden? Um, so Thoreau. Um, someone say who Thoreau was and what he did. Henry David Thoreau, do you know who he is? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what did he do? What was he? He went. Um, uh, he was. Uh, what do you think? As a hermit, yeah, pretty he much. Was, um, uh, I mean, uh, it was the experience of just living in nature to get to the real essence of things. Yeah, to what he called to front the essential facts of life. Yeah. Okay, good. So Walden conquered nearby. You can take the train. In fact, the train was there when Thoreau lived there. Um, now Tony lives there, or his family does, right? Um, you live on Sandy Pond, is that right? White Pond. White Pond, why do I think Sandy Pond? Okay, um, so Walden Pond is another pond in Concord. And Thoreau, who um, lived in Concord, along with a lot of the great American writers of the mid-19th century, Hawthorne, um, Louisa May Alcott, and her father, Bronson Alcott, um, and Emerson, um, preeminently, um, lived in Concord and... Um, Thoreau decided that he wanted to see what life was really like, what nature was really like. Um, he begins Walden by saying, very famous first sentence, I have traveled much in Concord. Um, just a great sentence if you think about it. Um, I have traveled much in Concord. Um, that is to say that even in the town of Concord, um, just going around Concord and seeing what people are like. That's like Byron going to Albania and um, Greece and Italy and Portugal. Um, you don't have to go to all those places um, to see reality. You can do it just in Concord. And what he sees in Concord, as he puts it, is slavery everywhere and torture everywhere. That no tale from the Arabian Nights or other tales of um, horrendous um, oppression and slavery is any worse than what he sees going on in Concord. Um, that is, people, as he puts it in another famous uh, sentence, people, can you get that door? Um, people forget their classrooms in this building. Um, people, um, as he puts it in his famous sentence, uh, people living lives of quiet desperation. Um, that that's what life is like. And what he wanted to do was to go to the woods, um, as he puts it, and to front the essential facts of things so that when he came to die, so that when I came to die, I might not find that I had not lived. Um, and he was friends with and a disciple of Emerson, who knew Wordsworth um, and knew one of Wordsworth's uh, main um, contemporaries and um, Thomas Carlyle um, and so what Thoreau does in Concord is something like what Wordsworth did but more so which is to give himself entirely up to a minute study of nature not for scientific reasons but to somehow understand what it means to be a living being what it means to be a natural being which human beings are um, and but so what? So Thoreau is in is in a way the most famous, at least in America, the most famous um, example of this um, relationship to the natural world. 
the reason Walden Pond still exists and is still beautiful is because Thoreau lived there and became um, a um, state park um, and then became a conservation land. A few years ago, Mort Zuckerman tried to build a, build a giant office park across the street from it, which there was giant outcry against all over the country, and now there's a kind of compromise so that it's still um, pretty much preserved the way it was, yeah. Don Henley from the Eagles probably knows a lot about it. Yeah, but these people don't know who Don Henley is, do you? No, okay. So he was going to call it the Hotel California, and... Okay, so you do. Um, everybody knows Hotel California? Um, so that's Don Hamlet. Um, so, um, that's a real-life consequence. And in fact, Thoreau could be said to have started eco the ecological movement, um, the idea of preserving nature, of seeing nature as something um, that isn't just there for humans to exploit, but something valuable on its own. Um, that idea became widespread because of Thoreau. Um, so. There's a line from Wordsworth to Thoreau to um, contemporary ecology and uh, you know, fear of global warming, things like that. Um, and really, it starts with Wordsworth. Uh, he should be credited with that. So, um, but that attitude towards nature is um, what Romanticism um, pushed really hard, sometimes because of nature worship. Um, Wordsworth himself says that he's been a worshiper of nature. But sometimes, um, and this is what we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or a week ago, um, sometimes because it's by looking at nature and by thinking about your relationship to nature that you can go deepest into um, your own self, into your own soul, into your own experience, into your own subjectivity. And that is what tends to happen um, sometimes as an alternation, as in Wordsworth. That is, um, again, the intimations of there was a time when um, the earth and every comet side to me did seem, I'm skipping, to me did seem apparelled in celestial light. That is, there was a time when earth itself seemed like heaven. But then I discovered that light didn't come from earth, that it came from um, the heaven that the soul was born in, and that in fact nature um, is not the be-all and the end-all. Um, nature is not, as Wordsworth puts it in another poem, um, nature is not all in all, everything that matters. All in all is the phrase. Um, and if we think it is, that's a sign of the souls of the heavenly glory from which the soul descends by going into the natural world. Um, the um, thing that Shelley does is essentially to see nature itself and the human mind as in some ways continuous, not that the human mind <coughs> is a natural thing, but that the natural world um, can be um, because of, of its openness to the powers of the human mind, um, because the human mind can um, find in the natural world 
the things that it finds there. Um, there is a fittedness of the natural world to the human mind um, in which um, the mind can discover its own depths by being in a natural world in which there are also other minds discovering their own depths. What we share with others, so this is now to, just to take a step beyond um, this question of other minds that we talked about um, two weeks ago. Uh, remember the body without a head, remember that um, discussion. Um, that what we don't share with anyone else, William James called this the um, deepest breach in nature, um, the most fundamental breach in nature is the breach from one mind to another. That there's nothing in the outside world that is as discontinuous as the discontinuity between oneself and another. Um, so we don't share anything directly with other minds. Um, I don't share anything directly with another mind. Um, but what we do share is the fact that we are in the world together. Um, there is this thing, the world, and, and we are in the world together. And um, the intensity that we can each feel in perceiving the world is an intensity that we can also understand that others can feel in perceiving the world. So the way we can think of ourselves as sharing in some way with other minds, um, although there is no direct relationship between one mind and another, um, it always circuits through the world. Um, but the way we can nevertheless feel that we are in this world with others, that there are other minds in this world, is to feel that the intensity that we are experiencing from nature is also on offer to others, to other minds. And being on offer to others um, means also that something like poetry can bring it out, can make that offer clear to others, that the kind of poetry that Shelley writes, this is the political valence in his poetry. What he's asking you to do is look at the world, and just as Thoreau is, look at the world. Look at where the world can bring you in your experience of your own mind. Um, so that, in a sense, is what Prometheus Unbound is about. So let me just say a little bit more about that um, as we ease our way into it. Um, that in Prometheus Unbound, the plot, to the extent that there is one, is that Prometheus has been 3,000 years, he's been tortured by Jupiter um, because he knows um, the secret of the end of Jupiter's realm. Now that is an old myth, that the reason, the reason Zeus tortures Prometheus, that's the myth that, um, that Aeschylus is um, writing about in his Prometheus trilogy, of which only the middle play, Prometheus Bound, survives, so we don't know what the other two plays look like. But the myth that Aeschylus seems to be referring to, is referring to, is that Prometheus has a secret 
about what endangers Zeus. And the secret is, now you'll know, the secret is that um, Achilles, the son of Thetis, is somehow going to be involved in overthrowing Zeus, that Zeus, just like his father, Zeus won't be an eternal god. He may be god for a long time, but he won't be an eternal god. As Zeus overthrew his father, Zeus himself will be overthrown, which is true. He was overthrown by the Christian god um, or by the Judeo-Christian god. Um, and for, for Aeschylus, that's not particularly true. But for Virgil, it starts being true. And for um, anyone writing in the Christian era, it is true. There's the famous cessation of oracles, which is the end of um, the ancient gods. It's stuff that a lot of adolescent writers, writers for, for, um, of adolescent literature, are really interested in. If you think of, of um, what's his name, Reardon? What's his first name, Rick Reardon? Um, no? The, what did you guys read as adolescents? You didn't read Rick Reardon? The, the, maybe that's not his first name. There's even a movie of one of his. Of Percy one. Jackson. Percy Jackson. Yeah, yeah, it's Percy Jackson, but the author is Rick Reardon. Uh, you pay no attention to authors. <laughs> Great. Okay, so when Shelley, why do you think he's called Percy Jackson? <gasps> Whoa! <laughs> Holy cow! Man, this mind blown. <laughs> Finally! <laughs> Finally! No, I, I know, I'm not saying you. <laughs> Thank you. Yes, Percy Jackson, um, who has uh, the, the uh, Gods of Classical Antiquity in one series and um, the uh, gods of the Egyptian gods in another series. Right? Mind. I, okay, I never read the book. I remember it's on the internet. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. Yeah, so mind-blowing, huh? Um, it's also what you get in Susan Cooper. Um, <coughs> just, it, it, um, that is the old magic versus the new and, and what happens. In a sense, it's what you get in C.S. Lewis. Um, in another sense, it isn't. In another deeper and truer sense, it isn't. But in, uh, in one sense, it is. Um, so... And that's an idea that is certainly part of the Christian tradition, that is the replacement of the pagan gods with the true god, um, which is felt already to be seen among the pagan gods. That is to say, um, what Milton says in Paradise Lost is that the Greek and Roman gods are actually fallen angels. They're actually devils um, who, become, who set themselves up as gods but they know what's coming. So they know what will happen to them eventually um, when the Son of God comes to Earth and they're defeated. Um, so it's, so the, and, and um, St. Paul actually quotes Euripides at one point. So classical antiquity and it is not regarded as just, oh, this is, these are complete BS myths. Uh, thank goodness we know the truth. Um, the idea is these are myths that um, have a grain of truth in them, but they are from the wrong perspective. <coughs> um, Milton himself, for example, describes the fall of Mulciber or Vulcan. Remember, he's the god who limps, and Homer tells us why he limps at the beginning of 
at the end of book one of the Iliad. How many people have read the Iliad? So at the end, good. Um, all of you should, like, before you even read another word of Corinthians Unbound. Um, just, you know, spend a few hours read the Iliad. At the end of book one of the Iliad, um, Hephaestus, that's the Greek name for the Roman god Vulcan, um, says to his mother that he's not going to try to help her fool Zeus anymore because he did it once and Zeus chucked him out of heaven, threw him or over the battlements of heaven, and he fell until he landed on the Aegean Isle of Lemnos and injured himself and limped thenceforth. Um, Vulcan is known as the, as the lame god. That's why his wife Venus, one reason that his wife Venus is more interested in Manly Mars than in Gimpy Vulcan. Um, that's all part of the myth. Um, so Hephaestus describes this, and Milton translates Homer word for word into, it's the best translation of Homer ever, um, in which he says um, his, of, of him that his hand was known in heaven by many a towered structure, many a palace and many a towered structure high, and in Osonian land, Osonian land means, do you know? Osonian land, do you know? Osonian land, A-U-S-O-N-I-A-N. No. Italy. <laughs> what? Italy. Yeah, but I do not I understand the spelling. <laughs> yeah, okay, okay, so anyhow, it's Osonia, a Ausonia, maybe? At any rate, it's it's a um, Latin, it's a it's a term Virgil uses. So it's an old term for Italy. No, maybe I didn't know it. Okay, so now you know. Just as Albion is England, do people know that? Um, so in Ausonian land, Milton goes on, men called him Mulciber. So Vulcan and Mulciber, they're the same god. In an Ausonian land, men called him called him Mulciber, and how he fell from heaven they fabled. From dawn he fell, from dawn to dewy eve. Um, and um, from dawn he fell, from dawn to noon, from noon to dewy eve. He shot from the zenith like a falling star until he landed upon Lemnos, the Aegean Isle, Thus they relate, erring, for he with his rebellious crew fell long before. So the story is, Homer tells the story of Vulcan being thrown out of heaven by Zeus, or by Jupiter, um, and they describe how he fell all day long. He shot from the zenith like a falling star. And Milton says, that's the story they, t they told in ancient Italy, but they got it wrong because he was actually thrown out of heaven long before that. So the point is there's a grain of truth in the myths that this god falls out of heaven, is thrown out of heaven and falls and is wounded and pained and injured. But the story is a distortion of what really happened. Um, so that is the general view. What's happening in the backstory of Prometheus Unbound is that Zeus is not going to reign eternal because Prometheus knows, or may not reign eternally, because Prometheus knows the secret that will bring his realm to an end. 
And so Zeus is trying to torture it out of him and failing. But apparently, um, in the third play, and this is the catastrophe that Shelley refuses, um, they make a deal. And um, Zeus reigns forever and Prometheus is freed. That's the, um, seems to be the happy ending. Um, do you need to, that seems to be the happy ending um, of the trilogy. But as I say, the third play, Prometheus Unbound, doesn't, um, uh, what wasn't, uh, isn't extant, didn't survive. Um, so Shelley's version now, Shelley does something, how many people have read any Greek tragedy? Um, okay, so if you have, you know that the way Greek tragedy works, the basic rhythm of Greek tragedy is, uh, and you know, there are, what, 37 extant Greek tragedies. Um, the basic rhythm of Greek tragedy is, it looks like it seems to be a day like any other when the tragedy starts. And um, people might talk about how it's still like it's always been. Nothing is happening. Nothing is changing, even though they keep expecting something to happen. But the reason that the tragedy has started, the reason we're watching this play, the reason this is the beginning of a play, is it turns out that that long wait, that sense of stasis, of, of nothing changing, now, in the next few minutes, is going to start coming to an end. And um, you probably know the, what are called the Aristotelian unities, which are misunderstood, but the Aristotelian unities are unity of time, unity of place, and unity of plot. Um, this was misunderstood, and is often still misunderstood, as a tragedy should always take place within a 24-hour period, and Shakespeare was roundly abused for never doing tragedies in 24-hour periods. Um, but that's not what Aristotle meant. What he meant was a tragedy should take place in real time. That is, that if you, and in a single place. That is, you might be passing by when something interesting starts happening. You might be eavesdropping on something interesting. And if you sit there for two hours, what you watch should take place in two hours. And what you watch should take place in a single place so that you're, um, it's as though you happened upon a two-hour event that, or however long it is, um, but roughly a two-hour event um, that happens right in front of you. Um, so tragedy is the beginning. The beginning of a tragedy in Greek tragedy is the beginning of those two or so hours. Um, and they all tend to take place in one place. Now, Shelley doesn't really follow those rules. Not all the Greeks follow those rules. Um, in Ajax, for example, there are two different places that Ajax takes place. Aristotle complains a little bit about this. Um, but that's the general idea. And the real point of the rhythm is stuff has been going on in a certain way for a really, really, really long time. Stuff or nothing's been going on for a really, really, really long time. The situation that we're in, which is un pleasant in certain ways, not our ideal, the situation which we've been waiting for to end. That situation has been going on for a long time and we don't see an end coming. And the tragedy begins with 
something surprising starting to happen, which then turns out to be that the end really is coming. In Oedipus, it's, there's, been, there's been plague and misery in Thebes for God knows how long, um, and no one really knows why. But then Oedipus gets the idea of asking Tiresias what's happening. Um, in the Agamemnon, the Trojan War has been going on for 10 years, and no one knows when it'll ever end. And uh, a guard who's watching the frontiers um, suddenly says, wait, I see a light, there's a signal. Can it be that Agamemnon is coming back, that the war is over? So we're at the very beginning of Agamemnon is the end of 10 years of waiting. Um, so in tragedy, something starts coming to an end a state of being starts coming to an end. That's what happens at the beginning of a tragedy. In Prometheus Unbound, that state of being is that Prometheus for 3,000 years has not given in to the torture that he's undergone from Jupiter. And so at the very beginning of Prometheus Unbound, um, you have Prometheus thinking about that fact. And he's just been essentially nailed to a rock um, in, the Caucas in the Caucasus, in the Caucasian mountains, um, for all this time. But now something starts happening, which is he's wondering, what was all this for? Why has he been doing this? And so now the question is, has he finally hit a tipping point where he's going to tell Jupiter the secret or not. Again, the exposition, the way what Shelley really captures about Greek tragedy is the, is, the, is the exposition of backstory, which always occurs at the beginning of a Greek tragedy. That is, someone comes in and says, oh, we've been here for 10 years and nothing has happened. 10 years ago, when Agamemnon went off to Troy, we had no idea how long he'd been gone, but he's been gone and nothing has happened. And now Clytemnestra has a lover, and Agamemnon is away, but who knows what will happen when he comes back. So there's a long exposition of backstory. But you also feel that, and this is the genius of, of Greek tragedy. This is a theatrical remark. I mean, a remark about, about theater. You also feel that the audience, and Greek tragedy didn't quite have audiences the way modern tragedy does, but the onlookers and the characters have a sense that something is imminent. We have that sense because we're going to see this tragedy, so there better be something imminent. Something had better happen, otherwise what's the point? You may as well sit and look at Andy Warhol's Empire State. Do people know that movie? No one knows the movie Empire State? It's um, eight hours, you know it? Well, it's actually eight hours of the Empire State Building. That's all it is. It's a camera on the Empire State Building, which starts, I think it's mid-afternoon, and it goes till night. So if you watch all eight hours of the movie, which I have a friend who did, um, all you're doing is watching the Empire State Building um, as night falls in New York, but nothing else happens. Um, that's Namely, you don't go to the movies for that. Namely, you don't. Um, mainly you feel that something is imminent. Um, 
that is something's about to happen. If everything is calm at the beginning of a movie, you know it won't stay calm long. But in Greek tragedy, you also have a sense that the characters are talking about backstory. Not because they do it every day, but because something feels to them like there's some impatience that is suddenly awakening in them. There's some sense somewhere that things can't go on. And um, that feeling that things can't go on feels like the beginning of um, the, the breaking of the logic. So at the very beginning of Prometheus Unbound, Prometheus is, well, let's look at the very beginning, then we'll get back to Mont Blanc. Um, but at the very beginning of Prometheus Unbound, um, Prometheus is thinking and talking and describing himself. Um, and I think his first speech does exactly that, that um, beginning of a change that the whole play will be about, or at least the first three acts of the play will be about. So monarch of gods and demons, he says, um, addressing Jupiter who isn't there, monarch of gods and demons. Um, demons there mean, um, it's a word from Plato, in particular from the symposium. What demons are, are intermediate spirits between humans and gods. Um, it's what Philip Pullman gets the idea of demons from in um, the His Dark Materials trilogy. Um, he gets it ultimately from um, the symposium, which, as I said before, Shelley was the first to translate into English. Um, Plato's Symposium, his dialogue about love. Um, monarchs of gods and demons and all spirits but one who throng those bright and rolling worlds which thou and I alone of living things behold with sleepless eyes regard this earth made multitudinous with thy slaves. Um, so all spirits but one, who is he not the monarch of? Monarch of gods and demons, he's addressing Jupiter and all spirits but one. So who is Jupiter not the monarch of? Him. All but one. You're not my king. I don't give in. So monarchs of God, monarch of gods and demons of all spirits but one who throng those bright and rolling worlds which thou and I alone of living things behold with sleepless eyes. So there are two sleepless spirits in the universe. Two spirits always attentive. Jupiter and Prometheus. Regard this earth. Look at this earth made multitudinous with thy slaves. So all living beings are slaves to Jupiter, whom thou requitest for me worship, prayer, and praise, and toil, and hecatombs of broken hearts with fear, and self-contempt, and barren hope. So you've filled, you've made every living being into your slave, and they worship you, they get on their knees, and they fear you, and they pray, um, and they praise you, and they toil, and they give you the hearts you've broken. You break their hearts, and they accept the heartbreaks you give them. And what do you give them for all of that? Fear and self-contempt and barren hope. That's the reward you give human beings. So notice that this is could easily be read as a political allegory. 
That is, Shelley is continuous in his hatred for tyranny in all varieties, whether it's God or king or prime minister who, or father in the family who is the tyrant. Um, so you can see at least the continuity of all this, that people are made to feel fear and self-contempt and their hearts are broken. Um, and and um, they get nothing for it. And all of this occurs whilst me, that's a direct object, whilst me, who am thy foe, eyeless in hate, hast thou made reign and triumph to thy scorn, or mine own misery and thy vain revenge. So you have made me reign, made me a king also, you have made me reign and triumph over what? Over my own misery and your vain revenge. That's how I'm like you. I have scorn for my own misery and for your vain revenge. So you have scorn for all living beings. I have scorn for my own misery. So you should be thinking of Satan here, as Shelley has asked us to do in comparing Prometheus to Satan. Um, I scorn my pain. I scorn your revenge. Uh, you, you scorn everything else in the universe. 3,000 years of sleep, unsheltered hours and moments, I divided by keen pangs till they seemed years, torture and solitude, scorn and despair. These are mine empire. So 3,000 years of pain, all of those years filled with moments of... Um, Keen pangs, pain in every moment, each moment itself, feeling like years. Um, that's what I have. That's my empire. More glorious far than that which thou surveyest from thine unenvied throne, <coughs> O mighty God. So my empire is more glorious than what you survey from your throne, you who are king of the universe. Mine is an empire of pain. And yet, it's more glorious than anything you can see. So why is that? Well, there's that idea of subjectivity again. The mind is its own place and in itself can make a heaven of hell a hell of heaven. What matter where if I be still the same and what I should be? All but less than he whom thunder hath made greater. Here, at least, we shall be free. The Almighty hath not built it here for his glory, will not drive us hence. And in my thought, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven, as Satan says. Um, so Prometheus is saying something similar. He is in the satanic position of preferring pain with freedom of thought to absolute pleasure as a servant or a slave. More glorious far than that which thou surveyest from thine unenvied throne, O mighty God, almighty, had I deigned to share the shame of thine ill tyranny. So you would have been almighty if I was willing to join forces with you to tell you what the danger was and to share the shame of being a tyrant. So it's not like Satan who says, oh, I used to be 
God's number one servant in, or God's number one um, uh, vice regent in heaven. But then I was demoted. What Prometheus is saying is I could have been your partner in heaven if I were willing to, to share the shame of being a tyrant, which I'm not. So this is one of the places where, again, to quote the preface Prometheus Unbound, Prometheus may be said to be exempt from the taint of ambition, which in the hero of Paradise Lost interferes with the interest. Prometheus is not ambitious. So you would have been almighty had I deigned to share the shame of thine alterity and hung not here if I didn't hang here nailed to this wall of eagle-baffling mountain, black, wintry, dead, unmeasured. So nailed um, should make you think of whom? Christ, yeah. He's very much a Christ figure. He's a combination, you could say, of Satan and Christ. Um, doesn't have any of the drawbacks of either. He doesn't have... Um, the idea in Milton that the son, courageous as he is, is nevertheless on the wrong side of the battle against Satan. He doesn't have um, Satan's um, envy, tyranny, ambition, and so on. Um, nailed to this wall, an eagle baffling mountain, black, wintry, dead, unmeasured, without herb, insect, or beast, or shape, or sound of life. Ah, me, alas, pain, pain, ever, forever. That's a very Greek line, that, that kind of... Um, channeling of all the energy in the speech before that into a line of almost pure woe, expression of almost pure woe. Ah, me, alas, pain, pain, ever, forever. And then again, it's always the same. No change, no pause, no hope, yet I endure. I ask the earth, have not the mountains felt? I ask yon heaven, the all-beholding sun, has it not seen? The sea and storm are calm. Heaven's ever-changing shadows spread below. Have its deaf waves not heard my agony? Ah, me, alas, pain, pain, ever, forever. So it's all the same. He's surrounded by nature, and all he experiences is this pain forever. And then he describes how nature is causing him pain. The crawling glaciers pierce me with the spears of their moon-freezing crystals. The bright chains eat with their burning cold into my bones. Heaven's winged hound polluting from thy lips. His beacon poison on his own tears up my heart. And shapeless sights come wandering by. The ghostly people of the realm of dream mocking me. So again, you could think of the monster in Frankenstein. This is not unlike the monster, especially if you think of this as being on a mountain like Mont Blanc. Um, and the earthquake fiends, that's going to be a term, very close to a term he uses in Mont Blanc. Is this the place where the earthquake god taught her um, her brood ruin? Is that how it goes? Is this the place where the earthquake god taught her brood ruin? Something like that. Um, and the earthquake fiends are charged to wrench the rivets from my quivering wounds when the rocks split and close again behind. So every time there's an earthquake, the 
rivets in his wounds that nail him to the rock are pulled through his body, but then he's nailed up again. While from their loud abysses howling throng the genii of the storm, urging the rage of whirlwind, and afflict me with keen hail. Again, you can think of what the first group of people see. Some say um, that um, the spirit is pursued around the one vast pine frozen to ruin. Do you remember that? The first of the two some say conclusions to the two spirits in allegory. Um, some say that uh, mid, mid the Alpine mountains there's one pine frozen to ruin and that the airy shape forever flies around it, um, still pursuing, um, still and being pursued <coughs> by the whirlwinds. That's what's being described here. The whirlwind um, is, the rage of the whirlwind is urged, and he's afflicted with keen hail. And yet to me, welcome is day and night. Whether one breaks the hoarfrost of the morn, or starry dim and slow, the other climbs the leaden-colored east. So he still loves nature. He's about to say why. But look at the natural description here. It's all welcome, but why? For then they lead their wingless, crawling hours. So time is passing. Every time he sees day and night, he knows time is passing. The hours are coming. The hours, later you will see the hours actually have a chorus. The hours are personified as spirits. Um, you know the Emerson poem about the hypocrite days? Um, so the personification of units of time can be a powerful poetic idea. It goes back to classical um, days. So the hours are coming, wingless and crawling. One among whom, so one of the hours, one among whom, as some dark priest hails the reluctant victim, hails means pulls, drags the reluctant victim, one among whom, as some dark priest hails the reluctant victim, shall drag thee, cruel <coughs> king, to kiss the blood from these pale feet, which then might trample thee if they disdain not such a prostrate slave. So eventually the hour will come, but this is an hour that's personified that will drag you to my feet to kiss the blood on my feet, and I will be the victor. So notice here the kind of militancy which comes from the book of Revelations um, of what the change will be like. One day you'll be kissing my <coughs> feet, and I would tread upon you. You will be a prostrate slave, but I, which, and I might trample thee, they might trample thee, my feet, if they disdain not such a prostrate slave. And then he has a thought. Disdain? Ah, oh, no, I pity thee. So he goes from, at that moment, that's a crucial moment. It doesn't look like it, but it is. It looks like a, just a rhetorical moment, kind of like Mr. T in the 18th. Pity the fool, um, which is actually pity is a word of disdain. I pity you. If someone says it that way, do they really pity you? I pity you. What are they expressing? Hint, it's not pity. Disdain, yes. 
I pity their expressive disdain. And that looks like what Prometheus is doing. But in fact, take this moment seriously. Disdain? Oh no, I pity thee. And then, yeah, he revels in anticipating what will happen to Jupiter. What ruin will hunt thee undefended through wide heaven? How will thy soul, cloven to its depth with terror, gape like a hell within? Anyone know where that phrase hell within is from? So if you don't know, you should always guess what? Good! That's great. Um, Yes, Satan, um, this isn't the part we read, but Satan gets to earth. Um, and finds that even though he's escaped the physical place of hell and has come to earth, he carries hell within him. Um, And he can't get rid of the hell within him. Um, That phrase, hell within, is one that Milton uses about Satan. Satan himself says, um, myself and hell which way I fly is hell, and in the lowest deep a lower deep still opens, threatening to devour, to which the hell I feel seems like a heaven. So hell is within Satan, not a place, but again, an aspect of subjectivity. The hell within him is what is ultimately torturing him. That, says Prometheus, is what God or Jupiter is going to feel. Um, How will thy soul, cloven to its depth with terror, (coughs) gape like a hell within? I speak in grief, not exultation. So that's what's picked up by his saying, disdain, no, I pity thee. And then he says, actually, I do feel grief. I think if this were really well acted, people occasionally do put Prometheus Unbound up as a show, and it's never been really successful. (laughs) Go figure. Um, But if it were really well acted, I mean, you know, like by an amazingly good actor, um, you could get the shift that's occurring just at this moment in Prometheus's mind. Um, I speak in grief, not exultation, for I hate no more, as then here misery made me wise. So it turns out that all this misery he's been feeling has made him wise. The curse once breathed on thee, I would recall. So he's forgotten the curse that he has cursed Jupiter with when he lost this battle. What did I say? Now I'm starting to feel sorry for you. What did I say that is making you so miserable? The curse once breathed on me, I would recall. Um, But recall there means not only recollect, but also (coughs) take back. I would like to take it back. And so what's happening here is we get another little slip in what had been a stalemate. I would like to take that curse back, but first I have to remember exactly what it was in order to do it. 
the curse once breathed on thee, I would recall ye mountains whose many voiced echoes through the mist of cataracts flung the thunder of that spell. So the echoes of the mountains flung his curse against Jupiter into the landscape. Um, he's now addressing the natural landscape around him. Again, you should think of the description of Mont Blanc, which is um, often in very similar language. Ye mountains whose many voiced echoes through the mist of cataracts flung the thunder of that spell. Ye icy springs stagnant with wrinkling frost which vibrated to hear me and then crept shuddering through India. Thou serenest air through which the sun walks burning without beams and ye swift whirlwinds who on poised wings hung mute and moveless o'er yon hushed abyss as thunder louder than your own made rock the orbid world. So the thunder of my curse made the world itself rock and the streams and the frost and the mountains and the winds and the whirlwinds were, um, and the springs were all silent. If then my words had power, Though I am changed so that aught evil wishes dead within, although no memory be of what is hate, let them not lose it now. What was that curse for ye all heard me speak? So now he wants to remember the curse, which he's forgotten over 3,000 years. Something is happening. We're getting backstory. What was that curse? You could see this if you like as very clumsy backstory, like the clumsy backstory we looked at in Frankenstein. You may remember, remember the, that letter that you couldn't find? Um, you found it, good. It took a while. Yeah, so you may remember, you know, maybe you don't, maybe you do, that there was this person, Justine, who lived with us all those years. Uh, I don't know whether you remember that. So that's clumsy backstory. In Greek tragedy, it's, stand, it's a standard way of doing backstory. Clumsy as it is, um, it's a standard way of doing backstory, which is um, at the beginning of the play. Um, but in this case, as to some extent in Greek tragedy, but not quite as much, in this case, the point is wanting to remember, recovering what he did, being aware that he's forgotten what brought him to this pass, having that awareness come to the place where he says, wait, what's the backstory? The very question, wait, what's the backstory? Is an event in the play. It's not just exposition. It's actually that desire to recall the backstory is the first thing that happens in the play, the first domino that falls, is his expression, his feeling, his becoming aware of that desire to recall the backstory which he's forgotten. That's what gets the plot, such as it is, moving. So, that, so the opening of Prometheus Unbound is Prometheus, you could say, becoming aware of a change within him, a change within him that he then addresses to the world in communicating with it. So then, just to show you how this, this goes, because it's very easy to get to what is this line 75 and say, okay, I've done my Prometheus Unbound reading for the day, um, and then have no idea why, the, why these four voices come 
But those voices are the voices responding to him. He called upon the mountains and the springs of the air and the whirlwinds and said, what was that curse? And they start responding in these lyrical, giving these lyrical song-like responses to what he's asked. And um, the question now is going to be, what is it that dethrones Jupiter, who does get dethroned in Prometheus Unbound? Why does he get dethroned? How does the curse come true? Is it right to say that's what, what's happening, is that the curse is coming true? Okay, so that's, um, I hope that that um, at least sets enough of the scene for Prometheus Unbound um, that it'll be somewhat easier as you go on now. But the essential thing is to see that the thing that dethrones Jupiter, just to give you um, the simplest plot summary, at least, of um, the first main movement in Prometheus Unbound, the thing that dethrones Jupiter is that Prometheus gives up his hate for Jupiter. That is, that when Prometheus recalls the curse, it's recalling the curse, taking it back, no longer feeling this absolute anticipatory triumph of hate against Jupiter that brings Jupiter so the question is, why? Why would that be it? And what does that suggest about the relationship of Jupiter to Prometheus? Who is Jupiter, really? If he falls when Prometheus stops hating on him. So that's how to think about Prometheus Unbound. OK, let's go back to Mont Blanc. Um, and by hook or by crook, we'll get to the end of it in the next 14 minutes or so, 15 minutes. That clock, I think, is slightly fast. Um, but I don't know. All right, at any rate. Um, so what we were looking at in stanza two um, is the way that stanza two now turns out to be a simile. That is, I think about the mind, I think about how the universe of things is more important than the mind. The mind is only the perceiver of the universe of things. But then I look at the mountain and I think, oh, you're a good analogy for the mind. So there's what I was calling a toggle back and forth between Shelley thinking about the structure of the human mind and Shelley thinking about the outside world and its relation to the human mind. And you could say part of the question is, is that relation one of analogy or one of governance? Does the world govern the mind? Or is the world, is the mind analogous to the world? Or should we say, is the world analogous to the mind? Those are three different things, different but related. So stanza one, essentially says, 
as Heraclitus says, I didn't mention this last time, but Heraclitus's um, very famous two-word philosophical doctrine, um, I think this is the shortest important sentence in the history of philosophy. Heraclitus said, Panta rei, anyone know what that means? Very good. Everything flows. Everything flows. Um, Beckett translated it as, being Beckett, he translated it as, everything oozes. Um, but yeah, everything flows. Um, nothing stays, nothing is forever. Everything is always changing. Everything flows. So that's um, a famous fragment from Heraclitus. And Shelley expands it to the everlasting universe of things flows through the mind. And a way of understanding everything is flowing is that the mind is where things happen. Heraclitus also, his maybe second most famous sentence is about rivers, anyone know? No, you can't step into the same river twice. Why can't you step into the same river twice? It's always changing. It's always changing, yeah. Just like a river that don't know where it's going, or that don't know where it's flowing. <laughs> Reference? <laughs> no. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Bruce Springsteen. Remember him? Yeah, okay. All right. I took a wrong turn and I just kept going. Hungry Heart? You don't know that song? It's like, you know it. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, there are two kinds of people in the world. Those who know the lyrics of songs they love and those who just don't. Um, no, it's true. I, I tend to be the second kind. If I love a song, I tend really not to know the lyrics except for the best moments. Um, okay. But there's another reason that you can't step into the same river twice, which is that you're not the same person from one moment to the next. Uh, it's not only the river that flows, although that's the point, it's that you flow too. Nothing, everything flows, nothing is the same. So here we have this combination in Shelley's mind of rivers and change. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind and rolls its rapid waves. A description, then, of the relation of the world to the mind. Then, as we said, we get that word of simile or analogy. Thus, thou ravine of Arv. So what I just said, the philosophical idea that I was giving in stanza one, ha, huh, look at that. It's illustrated by this mountain, which looks like the mind. So he's not saying, thus thou ravine of Arv. You might expect him to say, thus thou ravine of Arv, dark, deep ravine, thou many-colored, many-voiced veil, over whose pines and crags and caverns sail fast cloud shadows and sunbeams, awful scene where power and likeness of the Arv comes down from the ice gulfs that gird his secret throne, bursting through these dark mountains like the flame of lightning through the tempest. All of that is a description of the ravine of Arv and of, of the mountain. Um, it should remind you now, or the beginning of, of uh, Prometheus Unbound should remind you of this description, although it isn't, doesn't have um, the uh, antagonism that Prometheus has for Jupiter. 
it's still there's power in the mountain and there's me. But what we might expect is thus thou, Ravina Varv, pick up the sentence, thou dost, and the word we might expect is flow through my mind. But we don't get flow, we get lie. So it's not, oh yeah, so I look at the mountain and it flows through, through my mind and utterly overwhelms me. It's, oh, I look at the mountain and it looks like a picture of my mind. It's a really good analogy for the mind. So suddenly, do you guys know the language of tenor and vehicle in metaphor? Sort of? It's a metaphor, the idea of tenor and vehicle. Um, a vehicle is the literal meaning of a metaphor. It's what, it's what carries the meaning. It's if you say, um, my love is a rose. Um, you're not saying, um, I am just such an ethereal person that I can't love a human being. The only being in the world that I love is a rose. And I take it with me, look, my love, it's a rose. What you're saying is the person I love is a rose, or is like a rose in various ways. So the vehicle is um, the thing, the literal meaning, what a really dumbass computer would think you meant. Um, when you say my love is a rose, that's the vehicle. Um, it carries the literal, the, it carries what you're trying to convey. What you're trying to convey is called the tenor. Um, it's, I think, a mixed metaphor, tenor and vehicle. But I think that might partly be the point. That is that you don't want to say that um, the vehicle carries its driver, because then the metaphor would be all vehicle. So the vehicle carries its tenor, the meaning that you're trying to convey, um, but that you're not conveying literally when you say, when you say something metaphorical. So, um, the ve so you might therefore expect that the mountain would be the tenor. That is, things flow through the mind. That's the metaphor. The world is like a river flowing through the mind. That's the metaphor. Or the world is a river that flows through the mind. The everlasting universe of things flows through the mind. But no, it turns out that the mountain itself is the vehicle of which the tenor is the structure of the mind. So the mountain is the dumbass literal thing. And the structure of the mind is the thing that you can understand if you understand that the mountain is a metaphor. So the idea then, and this is, this is again what we said before, and now we'll really zip through it, but the idea is that we have a confrontation here between mind and mountain. Which, where is the real depth here? Which is deeper, the mind or the mountain? Which is wider, the brain or the sky? To go back to the Dickinson quotation. And he keeps wanting the mind to be wider and deeper. And he keeps working to make the mind wider and deeper, but the mountain keeps resisting that. So he wants to say, thus thou, Ravina Varv, you look just like the mind. But as soon as he talks to the Ravina Varv, it starts taking control of his language, simply by needing all this language to be adequately described or to be inadequately described. The mind can't adequately describe the mountain. Thou many-colored, many-voiced veil, finally, 
line 19. Thou dost lie. He wrenches himself away from the description of the mountain. But then the description takes over again. Thy giant brood of pines around thee clinging. Um, all of this. And finally, dizzy ravine, line 34. Now he tries for the mind again. And when I gaze on thee, I seem as in a trance sublime and strange to muse on my own separate fantasy. So now I'm trying to turn you into my mind, my own, my human mind, which passively now renders and receives fast influencings, holding an unremitting interchange with the clear universe of things around. Okay, maybe we're equal. One legion of wild thoughts. So my mind and the universe of things around, we all belong to a single legion of wild thoughts. This is where other minds might be able to come in. But now, those wild thoughts, what do they do? They float above thy darkness. So suddenly, it's my thoughts are just a bird in your world. Um, and you are the real mind of which I am only an image inside your mind. So now go to stanza three. Some say, as some say in the Two Spirits in Allegory, that gleams of a remoter world visit the soul in sleep, that death is slumber. That is, some say that when we're asleep, we see things greater than anything in this world, which must mean, to simplify a little bit, that it's all in the mind. That death is slumber, and that it shapes the busy thoughts out number of those who wake and live. I look on high. Has some unknown omnipotence unfurl the veil of life and death, or do I lie in dream? And does the mightier world of sleep spread far around and inaccessibly in circles? So I'm so blown away by what I see when I look at you that I wonder if I'm asleep, which would mean it was in the mind. But the very spirit fails, driven like a homeless cloud from steep to steep that vanishes among the viewless gales far, far above, piercing the infinite sky, Mont Blanc appears. So once again, he wants to believe this is in the mind, and yet the mountain is overwhelming him. Is this the scene? where the old earthquake demon, not God, but demon, taught her young ruin. Were these their toys? So he's looking at the mountain, and the, he says, the mind can't possibly imagine this on its own. Look at it. Tries again in stanza four to talk about everything that's important to human beings, but then get to line 98. And this, the naked countenance of earth on which I gaze, even these primeval mountains teach the adverting mind. The mind is teaching me that power dwells apart in its tranquility, remote, serene, and inaccessible. Look at the glaciers. They creep like snakes that watch their prey from their far fountains, slow rolling on. There are many a precipice, frost and sun, in scorn of mortal power, pile, dome, pyramid, and pinnacle, a city of death, distinct with many a tower and wall, impregnable of beaming ice, yet not a city, but a flood of ruin. So no matter how much I try to think that the mountain is just part of my mind, when I look at it, I see that it overwhelms all of humanity. The race of man, go to line 117, the race of man flies far in dread. His work and dwelling vanish like smoke before the tempest stream, and their place is not known. Below vast caves shine in the rushing torrent's restless gleam, which from those secret chasms and tumult welling meet in the vale in one majestic river, 
The breath and blood of Dis and Lance forever rolls its loud waters to the ocean waves, breathes its swift vapors to the circling air. So it all comes from the mountain, and we're nothing compared to that mountain. So every time he tries to assert the preeminence of mind, he looks at the mountain and says, no. That's completely scornful of mortal power. He looks up yet again in stanza five. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high. And that yet means even now, today, 2013, <coughs> it's still there. It's not only I'm looking up and it's still there. It's you when you're reading it, it's still there. I'm dead. Keats has a poem called This Living Hand, which is very similar. His last poem, This Living Hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, he says, would in the coldness of the tomb, so haunt thy days and fear thy living nights that thou wouldst wish thine own hand dry to blood so that in mine red life might flow again. See, here it is. I hold it towards you. Keats is saying, you're going to read this when I'm dead, and you'll be freaked out. Shelley isn't quite saying that, but he's saying, I'm dead, but Mont Blanc is still there. Mont Blanc yet gleams on high. The power is there, the stolen solemn power of many sights and many sounds and much of life and death. Look at it in the calm, utterly indifferent to humans, in the calm darkness of the moonless nights and the lone glare of the day, the snows descend upon that mountain. None beholds them there. All of this happens, doesn't care whether it's beheld, doesn't care about humans. It's a show just for itself nor when the flakes burn in the sinking sun or the star beams dart through them. Winds contend silently there and heap the snow with breath, rapid and strong, but silently. It's home, the voiceless lightning in these solitudes keeps innocently, innocently, and like vapor broods over the snow. The secret strength of things, there we go again, the everlasting universe of things, the secret sense of things, which strength of things which governs thought and to the infinite dome of heaven is as a law, inhabits thee. So that's where it all is, not among humans. And then the final reversal. And what were thou? What would you be? And earth and stars and sea, if to the human mind's imaginings, silence and solitude were vacancy. So everything that makes the mountain great ultimately comes from the mind, is what he's saying. If, this sil if I thought silence and solitude were vacancy, you'd be nothing. If humans thought silence and solitude were vacancy, you depend on human perception rather than being greater than it. As Kant will say, let me just give you this one sense of Kant. Empirically, you're greater, but mentally, humans are greater. You can kill humans, but the depth and strength and sublimity of your power can only come from you. Um, okay, so read more of Prometheus Unbound for Friday. And as I say, um, you know, try and, if you can, finish Act 2, um, but we'll talk more about it after vacation. And I know you have these papers you're writing, um, so that's another reason to put it all slightly. Okay, see you Friday. <laughs>